Welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast, a podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching. My name is Brent Davis. I'm the host of the podcast and I have, I think I've gone to the top of the tree today. I've got um, very excited about today's guest, uh, player, coach, um, presenter, has done just about it all. I've got Brett Rumford on the line. Thanks for coming in, Brett. Cheers, Brad. How are you this morning, mate? I'm great. Um, you're sitting in seven days quarantine after playing some tournaments over here on the East Coast. So yeah. first up, how are you coping with that? I'm actually in my seventh day, so I'm on the other side of it. So I'm actually excited to get out. So my girls are, um, yeah, well, I'm about an hour south for, the, for those that don't know Perth um, that well. But um, So I've got the hours drive back tomorrow morning. But just looking forward to seeing my girls. I've been away for six weeks, so it was just the unexpected... Um, extra week tacked on the end considering the borders were supposed to have been open on the 5th of Feb so I actually planned that last six week run with the knowledge of uh, just coming back in with the borders open so uh, McGowan shifted it unfortunately to like what uh, the 4th or something so I've just <laughs> I've just I'm just going to miss out on that deadline so um, yeah I sort of copped it a little bit but that's all right been a challenging couple of years for everybody, I think, and um, yeah, yeah, politicians changing them, um, changing their their goals or changing the goals of the state is it's been a yeah. pretty common theme across all the states. And you guys, you're in Melbourne, yes, yes. So yeah, I mean, you guys copped it, I think, more so than than anyone else on this planet. So I feel for you guys. It's been seven yeah. days. Seven days for me, mate. I think, um, yeah, I'm complaining to the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. I've, I've, I've had to, I've had time at home with my family, so that's always a good thing. So yeah, yeah. So for the uh, probably the two people that tune into the podcast that don't know who you are, can you give us a bit of a background on on who you are? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, European tour professional played in the played in the states for one year in '08 as well, but um, grew up in Australia. Played through the uh, the Golf Australia, what it was called back then, system, uh, played for my country, represented my state first, then my country, junior, um, and then senior level. Um, played Eisenhower with Kim Felton uh, back when uh, when he won that uh, that individual. Uh, Scott grew up in the era of the Adam Scotts, uh, Scotty Gardner, Wayne Persky, Aaron Badley, uh, Jeff Ogilvie, um, Greg Chalmers, Stephen Lee. Those guys were just uh, just before me. Uh, the Robert Allenby's again from maybe just before that, but um, grew up in uh, some really uh, esteemed company, you could say, um, back in my day, and uh, won a professional event back in 1999 called the ANZ uh, Players Championship or the TPC. So, um, and then basically went from there. So I took my uh, five-year exemption, couldn't take the money, of course, um, as an amateur, but took my exemption from that point and then uh, went across to Europe at the end of 2000 um, got my card in Europe and I've been playing over in Europe basically ever since. So, um, um, and then sort of somewhere along the line sort of just developed this, uh, this reputation of, of having one of the best short games in the world. So I guess, um, that's pretty cool. That's pretty unique because it, um, sort of came about, I guess, through, uh, through, through my peers, just playing with, playing with my fellow peers, which, uh, and you know what, you, you sit in the lunchroom after a round of golf and you play with a flush or a, someone that hits it miles and you know what, it's just um, it's just lunchroom chatter, isn't it? And it's sort of just, um, if you do it often enough, then uh, it, it becomes a bit of a legend like so many long drivers out there and so many ball strikers. So, And that's kind of like my story. But the short game stuff comes up all the time and we'll certainly cover that more because you, you hear coaches that aren't from Australia talk about your short game. So obviously yeah. it, is, um, it is impressive <laughs> out there and you obviously weren't from arguably 
one of the best in the business early on. So you're in the AIS program at one point there, working yeah. with Ross Ross Herbert. Can yeah, you talk me through Herbert. what that program was like? Yeah, and with uh, with with Dennis McDay as well. So Dennis McDay was was great as well, and I guess that was kind of like his his groundwork as well and his development as a coach. So and he's gone on to amazing things as well, um, and I'm sure he took a lot out of that program as well. But Ross was Ross was amazing, um, and of course it's one of those things when you're young at the time, like you're you're impressionable, you're young, you're just thirsty for this knowledge, you're not appreciative of where it's come from. You just take it for granted that it's just there's a guy talking about technique and playing all these shots and it's amazing. Um, perhaps didn't give him enough credit at the time. And also as well, didn't pick his brains enough as to his legacy about where he got his information from and his influences and how he came to be a, to be this this legend himself um, around the greens. And he, and he truly was. So I took a lot of the information, unfortunately passed in 2000, which, um, which, which was a devastating blow for Australian golf and, uh, for many individuals that, uh, that he coached at the time as well. So, um, yeah, look, it was, it was an amazing program. It was, um, it really opened my eyes to being more professional and obviously, um, competing, you know, more off the golf course than what you actually do on to prepare yourself for battle. So there was lots of, uh, like the, 100 point skills test which is probably just legend now but we had to do that literally every single morning before we could actually just go mindlessly hit a golf shot anywhere um it was a 100 100 point skills test so that's sort of and i didn't really get the full benefits of the actual program until two years after i left the program and then or maybe like 12 months to almost that 80 months after i left the program and then all of a sudden, I really just started to flourish. I really started to then rely almost on autopilot, could just basically fall back on a lot of these routines and a lot of these, the mental preparation that I trained so, so many hours doing. When I got into my position at the TPC, it was almost just, it, it just came out. I was very comfortable. I was very, um, I was very pre- prepared, should I say, in the environment that I was playing in. Um, and I would never forget that I just, when I was hitting golf balls on the driving range, I was looking across the driving range and you fall back into it is that you just get into that mind numbing, uh, my elbow, my wrist, and you get very technical. And you know, when my elbow gets right or whatever it may be, I'm going to be, I'll take my game to the next level, but I would just work on literally every single golf shot was just routine. I'd walk back and I'd walk through my routine and hit a golf shot. And I remember doing that. And it's easier said than done to be able to let go of everything and just go into routines and then practice how you would play. But um, I really, really relied heavily on that. And I had lots of trust in that. And um, it's got to be trained, but you kind of train out of it. You train into it. And um, so Ross was legend for that. On top of all this information, he just really, he produced, um, I think, uh, the strength of mind needed to compete at the elite level. The guy was just, yeah, I had the pleasure of sitting in on a short game session when he was coaching Lindsay right back in the day and just um you yeah. watch what he could could do in that at a little small <laughs> bunker at Sandringham driving range. It was um yeah. it was impressive. We, to, we actually used to blame the actual uh, the conditions of the sand belt for the fact they had the best bunkers on the planet. You had the nice hard <laughs> base and you had that nice, you know, that perfect two inch of yeah. um, sort of almost that soot. It's like, oh that's why he's spinning it back. And it's like, um 
still can't do it. <laughs> he was he was so far ahead of his time when it came to that that training and that that stuff. Like it's, it's stuff that's Miles. only coming out coming out now. He was years ahead of his time. So and that's what I mean is that that's where I'd love to have known where he got his where he got his knowledge from, where he got his influences from. In that sense, yeah. Because I, I still go back to his VHS video on Bonkers, and yeah, it's just yeah, I've, I've still got it, and you you, you still yeah. go to go to it and, and yeah, ch- check it out because it's such good information. So yeah, um, speaking of speaking of coaches involved in that program, you said you had work with Dennis McDade as well, but um, the physical side of stuff as well. So obviously Ramsey McMaster was involved yeah. in that in that program as well, and unfortunately we've also lost Ramsey, and he's yeah. come up in the podcast a few times. Can you tell me what sort of influence and that he had on you as a golfer yeah yeah Ramsey was incredible and it was I think it was tying in that team aspect as well you know the unity that it's just not just a a, you know it's no one-stop shop in terms of coaching so um he definitely had that team environment that we're all very very much um brought up in and accustomed to these days that everyone's got their their specialty in their field particularly at the elite elite level and um again it was just another aspect of what he brought um, to high performance. So Ramsey was amazing. And again, um, he was very much about just the, the postural, the correction, the longevity in the game and just preserving like you're out in the golf course for eight hours a day, practicing whatever it may be. But um, again, it was just a holistic approach that he brought to the game. Um, nutrition was another one as well. He really, he really hampered on nutrition and obviously preparation. Preparation was massive, getting to your venue, doing your shopping, just doing all the little things off the golf course that would make you prepared just to walk out there, be mentally prepared, physically prepared, um, just to go um, take on the, you know, the, the stresses and obviously what, um, and what the, the mental and obviously the physical pressures actually put on you when you're playing one week, two, three, four weeks in a row. So as amateurs, again, I didn't fully appreciate until I left for what actually Ross was doing. Like he, he was looking at it in the long game, not just the short term. So we'd play one week and then we'd have another three, four weeks off again. So I think we're like, what's the point of this? You know, we're, we're fresh. What are you talking about, Ross? You know? Um, but then when you turn pro, you quickly realize when you're out there for three, four weeks on the road, it's like you needed the maintenance physically. And that's what Ramsey McMaster with all these exercises, he was in, in ahead of his time as well. And I think for, for Ramsey, he was, um, He's a bit of a visionary. He never really rested on his laurels. He was always coming up with new innovative ways of actually basically being able to monitor and obviously um, also individually assess the body as well, um, knowing your own body, where you're at. And then obviously, because um, we're all different, so it was, all, it was very much about just uh, identifying your own body, um, your own weaknesses, and then working on those and then obviously just maintaining them for the, for the long run. It was brilliant. It's an important point, and I think it's something that coaches um, need to be aware of: is the fact that these guys continue to evolve. They weren't just okay. This yeah. is the way we're going to do it, and this is what we do. They changed yeah. how they did it all the way through this time, and I saw some of yeah. that stuff evolve over time. And you have to be prepared to say, okay, this can be improved. This is what I'm doing now, but I can make this better, and I can make yeah. this coaching better. And th- those those guys certainly did that yeah. over time. Yeah. It's extremely important. Hundred percent. So it seems like this program helped you. Like, I just can't fathom the fact that you won a tour event as an amateur. Like, just to be in that yeah. situation, you just don't see it. Um, so obviously, this program helped get you in that situation. So 
Was yeah. it just the fact that you were fearless as a as a player back then, or how did you cope with being in in that situation? No, look like looking back on it, um, it was a really weird week, um, no doubt about it. And I have to thank Aaron Badley actually for for that invitation. So obviously, Aaron Badley won the week before, and I think you know when you surround yourself with elite players and you see some amazing things that they're doing and they're constantly pushing themselves and competition, I think just, just breeds that, that next level. Um, and it makes you look outside, you know, the realms in which, you know, you might be working in just to try and consistently improve yourself. And, you know, we all, we're all feeding off one another. Wayne Persky got an invite that week. Uh, Scott Gardner was a four man Australian team as well with Aaron Badley. So Aaron Badley won the week before. So, and you know what? Aaron Bailey was an amazing amateur. Like he was next level, but it was, it was a level that was like just there. You know what? And we just got to keep working hard. And, and this is what happens with the progression is that you leapfrog, you leapfrog, you leapfrog right the way from the age of 11, right the way through. You just have your peers hitting streaks and just pushing each other. So with Aaron Badley winning the Australian Open, one, he got us in because of, um, Colin Phillips at the time that was, um, CEO of Golf Australia. Um, got a call from Trevor Hurden. Obviously, it was going to be great PR for Aaron Badley to play in that TPC, take up one spot. But uh, Colin Phillips, the legend that he is, basically said, look, you know, if Aaron Badley wants to get an invite, the four-man Australian team are going to play. So actually having someone like Aaron being so close to him and doing what he did just gave us tremendous belief. So it was like, wow, this you can do this. There's nothing to say we can't. But back in my day, we had, we were, we were brought up in a different mentality where you respect your elders. You know, um, you kind of had your place in society and you had to, you had to earn your stripes. You had to, nothing came easy. You had to work hard for it. And it's all very, very true. But I think, um, we just held, we had so much respect for the elite players that that was kind of like our handbrake is that you didn't disrespect and you felt like you're, like even just getting an invite to that week, we, we were walking on their turf. We took away four spots of their tournament players championship, which is the biggest event on the Australasian calendar. We got 144 pros all playing for their livelihood. And we've just taken away four spots. So we were literally the most hated individuals playing that week. So we actually had, it was a really, really weird sterile environment for the fact that there was not one pro there that wanted us there. That was it. But again, all I was thinking about was basically Aaron winning the week before and basically instilling this belief that we could go out there and win. So it wasn't so much about nerves. It wasn't so much about anything. It was just about, you know what? We can do this. We can, we can win a professional event. Aaron Badley's just done it the week before. And it was a matter of, um, when I won back to back in, in 2013. And I think so many people get caught up on, um, these runs, you know, games building. Yeah. My games building. You know, games trending and you hear all the time, a game's trending, you know, trending for what? what? What are you building for specifically? So they never say game is building to win next week. Game's trending to, I got to win into it. They just, it's just this mythical trending. So I sat down and basically wrote out with experience will tell you certain courses that just might suit your game over 12 months. So. And basically, I wrote down a list of golf courses that I believe that if I just played the golf that I know I can play, 
around a golf course that I know well, that I've played well previously, if I can just basically just control the things I can control and just go out and play, play my game. So if I looked at myself in the mirror and said, you know what, if I played my game and basically it's close to my ability, the golf that I know I can play around these golf courses, I can win. And there's no resistance with that. It just sits well. There's just this, you know what, there's no objection there when I ask myself that question. So, and that's kind of what I did. And then I just let that rest and sort of, I kind of went into that looking back on it. I kind of went back to that TPC where Aaron won. And then it sort of opened up the realization that, you know, when my elbow's correct, when I got this and it's like, no, no, no. Well, if I just play to somewhat my ability, because Aaron won, and if I could play somewhere to my ability, you know, around this golf course, it's quite, you know what? It's quite inviting. I like it. I can win. So, and it was just a belief. It just opened up this, this Pandora. And you, you know what? It's the world over as well. Um, Brooks Kopka and Peter Uline, they kind of fed off one another. And you've got these rivalries, not rivalries, but um, even mates as well, where they feed off one another and they just, one does something and you go, it just gives the belief for the next. And it kind of, it's just a knock on effect. And you look at Justin Thomas, uh, Jordan Spieth, that whole era that comes out of college, they're all like smashing each other's heads in college. And then one guy gets his foot in the door on the PGA Tour and starts winning. And it's like, well, you know what? I can do that. I can do that. So uh, I think rivalries are good. Um, and it just keeps, as much as you are mates, you've got the rivalry there that just keeps pushing you as well. So looking back on it, it wasn't necessarily um, nerves um, at all. Like when I sit down on the couch, I can identify as a supporter sitting on a couch supporting someone is horrible. <laughs> it's disgusting. So I was watching the hockey ruse um, in that final of the Olympics and, and my wife looked across and just went with that penalty shootout and my wife's gone, oh my God, you're embarrassing. You're, um, how, do you, how do you even play golf like this? Like this is, and I said, Sal, I said, this is honestly, this is nothing like <laughs> competing. So Sitting on a couch is horrible. So you can't really, you can't, um, yeah, you can't draw any sort of uh, parallels to um, sideline supporting um, compared to actually being out there. It's just a different, it's a different mindset. It's a different realm. Is it the fact that you've got control as a, as a competitor, as a player, when you're out there doing it yourself as opposed to on the sidelines? You can't control anything. You, you can't help them, essentially. You're just cheering yeah. from the sidelines. Look, every, every, I think every tournament is different. Every tournament that I've won has been different in terms of the emotional state that you actually need to then obviously adapt yourself to because it's sometimes, um, like China, for instance, I, I led by five. Uh, it was a tough battle with Miko Inelan the whole day. And then all of a sudden I've hold, I got up and down on a ridiculous, um, plank of wood. No reason, actually, that's just no, no reason why I should be getting up and down from that point, but I did hold a 40 footer on the next and a 50 footer on the next. I went to five shots in the lead pretty quickly over three holds. So you go from all of a sudden attacking, trying to get that, that lead and then you've got it. And then all of a sudden it's just, you got four holes to play and you got five shot lead. It becomes psychologically don't, don't mess this up. So then you're just trying to hang on to that lead and you get in and the, the, the tournament's kind of like done and dusted. It's over. So. And that's kind of like a different sort of 
that's a different state to play golf in. So it's not a very nice one when you sort of go into that defense where you just got to get it on the green. And then the other one is uh, when I won in a play against Philip Archer, where it's just a very, it's just a very attacking mindset. And it's probably the most euphoric experience and feeling I've ever had. Um, chipping in in the playoff against Philip Archer um, was just quite incredible. So they're all just, they're all different feelings, emotions. Um, they're subtle, but it's how you, it's how you're able to adapt to that. And on back night on Sunday, I mean, coaches are unbelievable. Coaches are incredible and full respect to the, to the coaches that are out there that, um, that help players obviously get into these positions. But back night on Sunday, um, that's a tough one. That's instinct of a player. That's, um, that's the true, that's the true competitor. Um, cause it's just you, you caddy, that's it. And then, um, how you compete, how you deal with those pressures and, and stresses, um, is up to the individual. Uh, and unfortunately there's nothing, nothing the coach can say or do at that particular point. Does that come from experience? Do you think is that the, this being in that situation? As often as you can be, it's hard. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. It's probably a bit of upbringing. You know what? Psychologically, if you if you speak to lots of psychs, it's it's going to be environment that you grow up in as well. Um, whether it's that competitive environment that's instilled in you early on, that you're able to obviously adapt to. But um, look, it's it's a tough one, isn't it? It's um, like you just got to experience it. Like you can talk about it. And you can you can watch it on TV and and you can go through all that, but there's also just there's the actual experience. So even even from a coaching level, you can watch someone on YouTube, you can read a book, but it's all just theory until you actually have the experience application side of it. So um, and that's and that's that's the most important part. It's just whatever you do, it's just it's actually having to experience it and actually you learn from it, adapt it, and then make it your own. So you have to make it your own. So, um, and you kind of have to, you kind of have to want to put yourself in that situation. You kind of have to want it as well. You, you have to want to get in that ugly zone and sort of, and you never, I don't know that. I don't think there's too many people that are actually hundred percent happy in that area of, <laughs> I think there's probably only one guy I've seen and that's Tiger Woods. That just seems to revel in it, which, um, I haven't quite worked out that, um, being that comfortable, um, in the situations that he's put himself in, seemingly. Uh, but obviously his coping mechanisms and how he deals with it is just obviously the best we've ever seen. He's got some sort of system in place, hasn't he, that makes that work yeah. for him? He's, um, yeah, <laughs> the guys, the guys are think, freak. And I think being good, at the end of the day, I think there's a level of just being good. And if you're just that tennis, we've seen it, where you just got to be just that little bit better and it's impossible to beat your opponent, um, you know, nine times out of ten. But with golf, it's one of those areas as well where the number one golf in the world can be beaten uh, numerous times, uh, more often than not. And you're going to lose more often than not. So, but Tiger had that, uh, that amazing ability where I think he just knew, he, just, he was just so much better. Like he was, his proximity to the hole, now we're looking at proximities and strokes gained, what he led in and obviously how hard he worked off the golf course obviously was just immense to get to that level. So... And you, you brought it up quickly in that in that answer there, but your playoff record is pretty impressive. I don't think you've ever actually ever been mm. beaten in the playoff, have you? So no. is that something that's because it's your relaxed 
because you're essentially either going to come first or second, aren't you? When you when you're in a playoff, yeah. you can't you can't miss the cut from being yeah. in that playoff. But how do you cope in that situation where you're just out there playing off against one player or two players? Yeah, look, um, I think Fraser, Fraser, Marcus Fraser is 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 um he's an amazing competitor as well. Like um, how he how he structures his game and how he plays. Um, is one thing, but also as well, just how he competes is is an, is another is another level as well. So, and I he's kind of like his he resonates with me for how hard he plays and how how much he draws on himself to to compete to play. Um, and uh, I played against him in the final round in Korea, and it was like it was a it was a hard hard fought day. Um, I was working with Warren Connor at the time, and he was. We were working on some stuff just again, just with myself, nothing else, no one else. It was just more about me and about uh, my personality. Um, he was a behavioral uh, psychologist. So he was more about um, personality profiling and just um, being able to learn more about me. So it was a case of, he kind of said to me that day that, you know what, you just gotta, you just gotta stay in your own place. Um, don't watch anyone's golf ball. Just be in your own place, be in your own world um, to get the best out of yourself. So it was a really, really hard fought day and no one was giving an inch and um, played with a Frenchman as well. I forget his name now. I shouldn't. He'll come back to me. But the three of us, we just played as hard as we could that day Um, and none of us were giving an inch. None of us were saying good shot. None of us were saying, but it was an environment that was great because it was just, you know what? We're out here to do our thing. We're all professionals. Let's get on with it. Let's play hard. And um, the last two holes, I uh, hit it way right. wasn't I was struggling with my golf swing all day, um, and I was just getting up and down. I was just managing my game around this golf course uh, around Black Mountain, and then 17 a really bad tee shot uh, made a double, which I led by two with two to play, and then 18 I carved one way right, chipped it out, made five on a par five, which is which is a gettable four comfortably. So Marcus Fraser had a putt on 18 for the win. Um, which it just came up just short left. And then it looked like, uh, yeah, it was all over. We go to a playoff and, um, yeah, it was just one of those things. It was, um, in the playoff, I played poorly and I finished poorly, but because we gave ourselves a second chance, all of a sudden, you know what, we're back in this golf tournament. So off we went and, uh, it was just a matter of all I was thinking was, it's funny how you throw things out. Uh, and the way my mind was working, the sun was going down and we pretty much only had one hole legitimately to to finish this playoff. Otherwise, it was going to get ugly. What are we going to do? We're going to share the tournament. Are we going to come back tomorrow morning? Didn't want to do that. And as I was walking off the 18th tee, it had a pretty good tee shot. It was just a case of I have to, I have to make a, a three up this hole. I have to finish it here because someone's going to be making a four. So, and it was just, that's all I really meditated on was just making the three. As I was walking down the hill, I just really, I really focused on what I wanted. That was it. I just held it in my mind of what I needed to do to finish this and got up there, hit a five iron. I'm not saying it's the reason why I hit a five iron to, to four feet, but it was funny how the green, it was just the most random green you've ever seen with a massive tear that ran off to the left. It was, um, and the tear had kind of like a bit of an S bend in it and the greens were like rock hard. It was like this table. So, and it was uphill 10, 11, 
uh, meters uphill. So you couldn't really even, you could see half the flag, but it was just the most ridiculous golf shot to sort of when I got up there, kind of like the indentation was just on this, this spine. I had like a probably two feet to land it in. Otherwise it was down a hill. It was either coming back down to the front or it was either going to catch the site down slope, which, which phrases did and go over the back of the green. So it's kind of just pitched on this, this pimple that was, I couldn't do it again. I'll give me another million golf shots. I wouldn't be landing on this same pimple. So, and it was kind of one of those things. It's just, you just put it out there and it's amazing. Strength of mind just comes from holding pretty much in your mind. I, what you want to see happen with, with no other thoughts escaping that. And, um, and that's kind of, you kind of, you, you get out of that at times, you know, you go to that defense, attacking defense attacking and then it was just for me i walked down that only told played the last two holes defensive just trying to get it done to then attacking so and a good probably a good way that probably some of the, the kids that might be listening to this could probably um associate it with is uh, match play any kind of match play really um penance or otherwise where you're two up with four to play majority of the matches will actually be one for the person that's behind for the fact that it goes from complaining, 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 it gets to a point now where there's necessity and the mind now goes to this attacking, nothing to lose, full commitment. They see what they have to do. They know what they have to do in order to either get back in the match or have it or win it. And everything becomes very, very crystal clear. The first 14 holes is just a matter of, uh, they're just, they're just trying to make something happen. And it's like everything becomes, there's clarity. And then there's more so clarity as well for the person that's taught with four to play. Because all he thinks now is I just got to halve this hole or win it. It's all over. So now it becomes this defensive, just get it in play, which we can all, we can all associate with. We've all felt that um, just to try to close out a match when you know the energy that you feel from your playing partner is just all attacking and it's all aggressive and it's nothing to lose. And you know, he's already lost in his mind and he's happy to go down fighting. So, and there's that mentality where when you've got nothing to lose, um, all to gain um, it's a good place to be in but it's hard to stay there so staying in that frame of mind constantly from hole one through 18 of what you want to see happen regardless of what's happening is a tough place to be in um, and that's where strength of mind and the actual strength of will um, is a tough one to sort of try and to try and be in that state all the time Tiger Woods has that all day every day that state of mind, that that will of what he wants to see happen, regardless of what's happening. I like it. So many good good pieces of of information in that answer. So appreciate you yeah. sharing that. I'm going to ask Fraser about that playoff when I get him on the yeah. on the podcast. I was look I'll even to the story. point. And yeah, no, he'll he'll probably have a version as well where um I absolutely snubbed him and um <laughs> like I'm I'm in death mode on that playoff hole, like uh, full attack mode. Let's um let's bury these. These fellas use the other descriptive, but, um, and, um, yeah, so I was just so much, you know, with was and the whole day, like not, no one was giving an inch. There was not a word that was said all day. And then phrase, you know, the legend that he is and the, <laughs> he kind of like hit that five iron in there and the crowd's going absolutely mental in the playoff. And like for the first time of the day, he turns back 20 meters up the fairway, he gives me the thumbs up and he goes, Rummy, fuck man, that's a great shot, man. And I kind of just, I was like scratching little Ronnie's head. My caddy was like, just underneath, he wasn't very tall at all. So I'm scratching his head and I'm in full death mode. And um, I kind of looked at Fraser. I didn't, 
he caught me off guard. I didn't know what to say. I was like, and he goes, oh, yeah, no worries, mate. Yep, no dramas. And I kind of, <laughs> I think I kind of pissed him off a little bit, not intentionally. And um, shit, I walked up to the next to him. I said, Fraser, I said, I'm so sorry, mate. I said, um, thanks. And he goes, oh, mate, don't worry about it. You know, it's all good. So, oh, man, I feel, to this day, I feel really, really bad. But it was just, um, it's just, you know what, it's just, it's competition, isn't it? You know, it's just um, when you're in the moment, um and you like that it's um and the day wasn't about that it was just it was very much to the death um and uh it was the first olive branch that was thrown out there for the day um and yeah anyway so he love his version but my god it was uh it was a cracking day it was hard fought and um yeah no full respect to phrase though for his whole career not just that but um he's a legend of australian golf that's cool. I will get his. I'll give his version of the story. But t- yeah. tell me about making the jump from Australia to playing European Tour golf. It it must be tough, especially first year out. You've gone from inside of a yeah. program where everything's set out for you. Essentially, you do this, 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 and this. Yeah. Um, and they do obviously yeah. try and teach you to do that. But you're out there by yourself, traveling from country to yeah. country, essentially in the yeah. <laughs> European Tour. Um, tell me about the experience there. Oh, it's bad. It was really bad. Like this is back in the day. You have to remember like my day um, to get back on topic was we had no mobile phone. We had no internet. We had no Google, no YouTube. So you know what? I grew up here in Perth and pretty much like all of us, we had a 15 kilometer radius of that was our knowledge base. So a 15 kilometer radius, the golf courses within that was basically your source of knowledge about what this game was all about, about how do I play this game, about what do I do. So I had Ross Metherall that was in that radius. So I grew up in Eastwick Park. Collier Park was was about 5Ks away. So that was my local. And then I joined Royal Perth when I was 11. So that was another source of information with the pros that were there as well. So associating with these in these environments, that was my knowledge base. And my knowledge base grew to to basically that what they knew, that was it. So how I played, how I practiced, uh, that was gospel. And that's what I did. And thankfully enough, Ross Metherall was a player, an elite player and a very accomplished one as well. So I got to caddy for him through the May circuit and so on and so forth. So um, I actually got introduced to this. So now when you go travel now, there was, I had to go walk down to a tobacco store to basically, you know what, get a phone card phone home didn't see anyone like this have the familiarity of actually seeing someone face to face so you were literally just basically out on your own that was it for six months and my first year that when i went away obviously um i'm a bit of a mummy's boy as well um and it was just a big big shift to sort of go away had to rent a house over in the uk and i basically just had to tear off the band-aid had to commit and i remember the Irish Open, I missed a cut and I came back and I just basically just cried and cried and cried and cried on, uh, on the bed. And I did that most nights. Um, not, I didn't cry because I'd missed a cut. It wasn't, it wasn't a case of that. It was just, I just asked my, the question, you know, why, why am I doing this? What, what's this all about? What? But I kind of liken it to, um, I don't know why, but there's something that draws you back there. And there's just something that just, um, and I can get back on this topic later about my surgeries and stuff, but there's something that just keeps drawing you back internally that just, that drives you. Um, and it's hard to explain it. 
So, and that's kind of like what it is. And um, Peter O'Malley, I think, I think it's Jill, Pete's wife's brother-in-law. So he was uh, an adventurist and there's an amazing documentary on his kayaking from Tasmania through to New Zealand. I don't know whether you've ever heard of it, but um, it's an amazing documentary if you YouTube it. Um, I forget his name now. Apologies, Tom and Jill. But um, he's paddling out and Dick Smith basically uh, tipped him a million dollars, had this amazing kayak that he could basically link himself in and submerse himself in, in rough seas. He could tumble and everything else. So had all his food. I remember him sort of now paddling out into, you know, this nothingness um, and him crying and everything's documented for the stuff that yeah, they never found him in the end with one day to go. He's kind of just um, spoiler alert anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, so, but on the way out, you can just see his family's on the, on the beach and they you can kind of see it, the family over his corner of the right shoulder and he's, he's crying like his eyes out going, I don't know why I'm doing this. I just don't know why I'm doing this. Like he was afraid, he was scared. He had the unknown in front of him. He didn't know what was going to happen. He, there's a chance he could die. He's going to be out there for three months or whatever it was, just paddling out in the middle of this, you know, the deep blue. And he started crying. And, and I just thought, you know, what, what is that? There's something in him that just drives him. And a lot of these extreme sports people, they've just got this calling, this, this something that just wants to just keep going. And there's many times where I wanted to give up and pack it in and cry and just ask the question. I just had, I just, I fell asleep. I woke up the next day and I just kept going and just kept going. Um, and it's hard to explain it. The actual sanity, you could say, in terms of like some of the situations I was in on the other side of the world, just, I could pack it in and just come home and just be happy and content and just do something else. But something just kept driving me and uh, always has. Was there a turning point where it started to become easier for you when you're over there playing, or was it yeah, something definitely. you? You've- yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And that, and that was just experience. You know, it was my more my surroundings. So when, and I think Golf Australia are doing an amazing job with uh, one the funding for these kids that you know eventually turn, and then two having houses over in the states where it's just a communal house where these guys can come um, or get together have barbecues kick the football um, work out in the gym and just just come together and just have a conversation simple as that you know it was just having someone around me that was the hardest part is that i just had no familiarize familiarization with anything or anyone like nothing so then after a while you sort of you're landing at these airports and then after two, three years, everything just becomes like home. Obviously, there's everything, there's, there's lots more familiarity with everything. And then I'm starting to forge a few more friendships with people over there as well. So, and that just took time. That took a whole lot longer than what it should have done, I think. Okay, we had a couple of audio issues there, but you yeah. were, you were talk, talking about... Um, getting more comfortable out on tour there. Yeah. So um, that was obviously a huge part of you performing over there. So yeah. talk me through that, how you got more comfortable over there. Yeah. Well, that was just a case of just um, just time. I think the time um, I rented a place over there as well. So that started to feel like home. And then, you know, at least for more weeks off, I could actually just come back to a base that felt familiar, felt comfortable. And then even the areas that I was, I was playing golf in, I was getting to know the – the local pros at certain golf courses I was practicing at. So 
uh, and pretty much every golf course on the planet, like literally, it's exactly the same. You got the four or five juniors sniffling around, um, you know, being a nuisance, and then you got your elite players there as well that are playing all the time. So you get to you get to meet the the better players that are out there five six times a week. Um, you hook up with them, and you just start you, know, you start forging relationships, and everything just becomes um, you know just a lot more comfortable. Um, so, and that just takes time as well. But it's just putting yourself out there. It's just making yourself, introducing yourself. And being open to that as well, so uh, not being so closed off, and then hating the world and just wanting to come home, sitting in a hotel room or or your apartment. So uh, yeah, so for me, I was just uh, it was very much like that. And then yeah, obviously technology started to come in over time as well. So then that that made things you know more and more easier. So rather than just going down to the tobacco store to go find a a card for twenty pound, which would last about three minutes. Um, it was very expensive at the time. So now we just, uh, we've got these plans with, yeah, uh, FaceTime and the rest of it. So, but, uh, so that, that definitely, that definitely helped ease that time away as well. And then I met Sally, um, in 2006, seven, which then from 07, 08, uh, we started traveling full time, which then from that point, once you've got a partner and you're traveling, um, yeah, it's good fun. It's great times. Was there certain players out on tour that, that helped you with that, without getting more comfortable, or, or is, is there players out there that were just complete utter pricks, essentially? Yeah, no, 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 no. no, the Australian contingent back in two thousand, God, we had like almost like sixteen Australians out in, on the on the European tour back in two thousand. So Jeff came over for a little while. I think he was just finishing up and going to the states. But God, you had Lucas Parsons, Terry Price, myself. Um, there's Peter uh, Peter Lonard. Peter O'Malley, Nico Hearn, oh, there was uh, there was a whole bunch of them over there, um, which I roomed with. Um, actually, Lucas Parsons had a house back in '01, which uh, he actually '02. Sorry, he um, he let us crash with him as well. So I stayed with him for the whole year, which was which was amazing. So we basically, I just basically had a master chef, as you know. I think he went on master chef for a little while. So um, I knew. Uh, his culinary expertise well before he was on that program. So, <laughs> so which was great fun. Peter O'Malley, who's absolute legend of Australian golf, he's he's looked after every Australian that's gone across there to date. So, and he was really really accommodating with his with his accommodation over there, letting me stay with him, practice rounds, uh, advice, everything. Richard Green, um, another one as well. So there was a there was a whole bunch of them over there that was just. Um, you know what, even just just sitting down in the lunchroom, just having a chat, you know, it was enough. So just to stay connected, we're talking about Australian issues, Aussie rules, football, whatever it may be. We're just, we're connecting with home, which was great. So, um, and unfortunately we don't actually have, or Golf Australia doesn't really have that link or that support over in Europe at the moment. But, um, and most of the Aussies are sort of just uh, fending for themselves on that side of the country. But, uh, still, I think it's a it's a great. I think it's just a great platform for the PGA Tour, and a great inroads. I think um, Minwoo Lee has done an amazing job at that, winning the Vic Open and then uh, winning a Rolex Series event. Very very heavy with the world ranking points. So world ranking points is where it's at. I think uh, in terms of transition and then making yourself feel comfortable on that side. I think being able to compete and play, and then when you're playing at your best or somewhat comfortable with your game i think what makes it 
what makes it easier is that if you're actually having results out there, it makes life a whole lot easier. Um, when you're not having the results and you're, you know, you're playing half decent and not getting the results or missing cuts, I think that's more the contributor to actually making life a misery out on tour. So um, I don't think there's anyone out there that would really struggle if they ran top five every week and was winning flying private jets all over the place. Um, I think it'd be a pretty, I think your mindset would be in a pretty good place. <laughs> true, very so, true. But I also know that a lot of the off course sort of stability is what's going to create that performance on course. So, um, yeah, so I think getting across to Europe, having a slightly, slightly different golf courses, uh, a little bit more uh, comparable, I guess, to Australia and its conditions, a little bit more windy, and but uh, you're playing all over the place as well. So you're actually playing on different grass types, different conditions. Um, so you're actually just getting a bit more of a holistic um, development of your golf game, I think, when you're playing over in Europe, while at the same time you're accumulating, it's a whole lot easier to accumulate world ranking points to get you inside that top 100, top 50. So, I mean, to think of Min Woo, He's won a big tournament with the Rolex Series event. Um, it's incredible how he's got the top 50 in the world with only, only being out there for two, three years. So um, hard to do, but uh, can be done. Yeah. So, and I think for those that just want to go straight to the States, <laughs> I think it can be uh, can be an undoing. Can be. Yeah. Now, short game master. That right. is, is, is essentially what, what comes out when you hear your name mentioned. Now, before we get on to how that has evolved over time, and obviously part of that, is, as you said, is playing in Europe and playing all over the essentially yeah. the continent, playing on completely different conditions week in, week out. I've got to talk about a rumour, and I've got to find out whether this is true or not. Right. Okay. Did or did not Tiger Woods reach out for assistance with his no. short game to you? No, 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 no. I'm sure he watched some of my YouTube video. Because <laughs> that <laughs> was floating around for a while, wasn't it? I'm sorry? I'm sure that was floating around for a little while. No, there, no, Tiger look, honestly, out. oh, come on. Come on, come on. I mean, Tiger, he was probably up to his eyeballs on medication and he hadn't, hadn't chipped the golf ball. I mean, crikey. I would never put anything on YouTube after two weeks off coming back in a few chip shots. I mean, come on, let alone months out of the game. So I think, yeah, look, I think everyone, I think it was everyone else's interpretation of the position that it was in. And yeah, I think for himself, complete trust. I mean, you're talking about possibly one of the world's best short games ever, um, let alone, I mean, pretty much every aspect of his game was was unbeatable back in 2000. It was flawless. But his short game in his hands, you're talking like no one's, no one's, I don't think has got um, any more connection or intellect to the proprioception and the feel of his hands on that golf club and understanding where that leading edge in the bottom of the sole is. So it was only a matter of time <laughs> before he was going to come back and just start kicking everyone's ass, which he did. But I think um, I wasn't expecting it because I just know I know once you've got it, you can't you can't just lose it like that. But I know a lot of players have searched for it and lost it. And I guess that's what everyone was, I guess, was just waiting for with Tiger. Oh, my God, this is it. Like, this is the, like, Olathabal, um, same thing. Kind of just played at such a high level. Still grinds his ass off today and just never quite got back to that level. Seve, same thing. God, there's many. David Duval. Got to world number one, kind of lost it, never got it back. And I think everyone was just, wait, well, is this, is this the moment? 
<laughs> is this the kiss of death uh, for Tiger? But uh, look, he's he's too smart. He's too brilliant. He's too good. So, but no, to answer your question, um, he was always coming back. I'm disappointed. I thought that would be a really cool yeah, story if he reached out to the guru on short game. No, nah, there's, nah. there's lots of smart people out there. So, um, no, nah, that's cool. Yeah. So, so talk me about how it evolved. Obviously, you had a pretty good grounding from Ross and the coaches early on in your career. But how did your short game evolve over time? How did it change? How did it improve? Talk me through that. Uh, well, not really. I funny. I I just practice and practice and practice. I practiced um, mainly on my short game. My dad was always a big advocate of having the best short game in the world. You'd be the best golfer, and he just always believed that. So. Um, knowing that there's a bit more to it than that now. <laughs> I worked really, really hard on my short game. So back in the day, you know what? The game's changed so much. Like if you can't compare the era that that we played and compare it to today's golf ball. It's just, it's not comparable. So we never really went to the gym purely for the fact that it wasn't so much how hard you hit, it was just more the ball control. So it spun so much. It was all about being shallow and having the mastery of being able to shallow it out, control your spin, loft and then that will control your ball flight and that took that was part technique it was part experience and part of learning the game or is either if you can't you better have a bloody good short game but you could and i remember chucky fowler peter fowler once said that he believed you can get up and down from anywhere around a green absolutely anywhere there's a possibility of doing it and uh, i kind of believe that to be true with the golf ball that we used it's just like literally you could spin it and check it any which way you wanted to. So, um, and now everything's just changed so dramatically. So my, I just worked really, really hard on my short game. I wasn't the tallest. I was quite small for my age. I was physically not strong. So I had to rely heavily right the way through up until I was 13, 14 on my short game just to make a score of it. And then sort of realized, and that's kind of like how I formed my game. And then uh, technically I wasn't the best. I wasn't the best driver of the golf ball. Um, my iron play was okay, it was pretty good, but um, just could not get the thing in play regularly enough, like not, a lot, not like uh, all my other peers anyway. So I've always thought if I could have driven it half decent through my career, then I would have won triple the amount of events that I would have won. But um, to sort of work on 60% of fairways and then, you know, that 10 average, 11, I guess, uh, greens as well, it's, um, it really wears on you. Like, and you just got to just keep grinding out weeks, grinding out weeks. Uh, so you got to be mentally really, really strong um, in that area. But, and I just went to, went to the RES and I'll never forget. So I, I practiced, 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 practiced. And I thought I had a pretty good short game. And then Ross Herbert basically just flipped it all on, all on its head. And, um, and it was just, I think it was just mainly course management comes in many forms, but also as well, course management around the greens about how you play shots. Um, and then the actual shot option was a big thing as well. So, um, and it's a bit like I liken it to the TrackMan optimizer. So you got the optimizer, which gives you like your your height and uh, all other all your other parameters. But I can look at a lie, and there's like an optimizer for certain shots as well. So if I had a sand wedge that had 12 degrees bounce with my technique and my mental state, let's say these are your, your boundaries of your optimizer. So now on that lie, if there was 12 degrees and the optimization would just be all over the place, even though my technique is in the blue, mentally I'm in the blue, perfect. And then 
all of a sudden I go to lie, it's perfect, it's in the blue. And now if I go 12 degrees of bounce in your bounce profile, all these things just now just go all up to shit. (laughs) So, guys, it doesn't matter about your technique. You can have a perfect technique and just try and play that same shot. It's not going to come off. So, and that's kind of like how how Ross would sort of um, work his way around the green as well. And that was his genius. He had all the shots, but then he would pick a shot. I'll never forget it. My first week there, there's a bit of a hill, sort of went down, had the pin in slight semi-rough. And he said, he dragged me in first person, said, Brett, how would you play this? And I said, oh, so back in my back foot, and I just bump it into the bank and I just let it chase down. And he goes, wrong. I've gone, oh. There you go. <laughs> I've, gone, Man, I've, got a, I've got a tidy short game. I've gone, what do you mean, it's wrong? I don't know there's a hundred different ways of playing a goal shot, but then again, it was probably wasn't the best optimized uh, option. So he said, Scotty Gardner, you come in. So Scotty goes, oh, I'll just open this up. He was a second year, so he knew. So it was a bit of a loaded question, the prick. So, and he goes, because of this slope just here and the pins at the base of it, I'll open it up and I'll get quite aggressive and I'll flop it in the air. And if I whiff it a little bit, because of the downslope, my margin for error is now increased. So you'll roll that down the hill. It's going to be soft enough, basically roll down to the, to the pin. Or if I catch it too good, and land on the flat because of the height, it's not going to really go anywhere. So my margin for error is going to be increased there. He goes, well done. So I've gone, hmm, all right. I've got a lot to learn. So, <laughs> so, and it's stuff like that. So it was learning, it was learning lies as well. So lies is a big thing. Probably the biggest thing for me is that only through experience, you got theory, you got all the rest of it, but looking at a particular lie and then knowing how that's going to come out of that grass, um, is really that takes a lot of experience and then it just it's feel so if i you got all the technique and you got everything else and then if you had your best friend on a putting green you said radio has never played golf before and you go radio before you hit this putt this is how you grip it this is how you stand eyes over the golf ball um balance neutral uh, shoulder width part you could you could talk him through it all and he would go radio have your practice swings same length, same same length back, same length through there, thereabouts, accelerate through the ball. You can tell him all these principles. Right? And the last thing he's going to say from 40 feet, you look up and go, how hard do I hit it? And you're going to go, well, you could pull out the whiteboard and you go, well, the ball weighs this, right? Gravity <laughs> is this. And you can do, smack up all these equations with the drag of the surface and the grass running at nine on the stem. So, and again, it'd be like, all right, that's great. But how hard is that? So... Well, experience it. <laughs> that's called feel. So get up, and that's the that's the first thing that any player is going to experience is feel. And he just might hit it eight feet in front, or he might go bang, and it's going to go on the other side of the putting green. And you go, well, welcome to golf. Uh, a little bit softer than that. <laughs> so, so for me, um, there's that element of feel that the first, the very, very, very first golf shot you ever hit in your life. And that feel that you that you take from it should be the last thing you think about for the rest of your life before you hit a golf shot. It's just pure feel. Forget about the technique and go back to what that feels like, what that flight feels like, where, how you want to land it, and the feeling and the tempo of the shot. There's that, but then there's experience. So experience can only teach you what that feels like in terms of, of the prediction of what is going to happen. So now... Around the green, Gary Players said there's not enough hours in the day because there's too many golf shots around it that you need to be able, you know, that you can basically invent and make up with slopes and tiers and everything else. So, and that's true. 
So to play a particular base line golf shot, neurologically, your body can adapt to that feel and that repetition, and you just call on it on the golf course. Anything outside of that, you start opening it up in realms where you've never been to or experienced or had that muscle memory to now trust it that, you know what, I can move the golf club in this direction and it's going to go up in this in this fashion. You have to train that. And for me, I've hit thousands and thousands and thousands of golf shots, which I've got a database. It's like a file filing cabinet of golf shots that neurologically my pathways have been thickened so much through the repetition of a golf shot that I've played of many, very, many variant of golf shots that I look at a lie and I look at the landing area and my filing cabinet automatically just flicks through to bang, that's the one. That's the shot you want right here. And then it's a feeling cabinet <laughs> that I basically now just attune myself to through practice, like theory and all the rest of it. And you can listen to guys on YouTube and talk wide. Like, what is that? Like, what, what are those? It's all just theory until you can actually physically step up there and then reproduce it and then feel where it is. Um, but it's through the repetition. So for me um, and my evolution, I've just chipped millions of golf balls and I've just got millions of repetition on hundreds of variants of predictable um, outcomes that I've basically previously played that I can draw on. And only experience has given me that. So um, trying to trying to instill that into a young kid, possible. Can't do it because that's they have to own it. You can't just say, oh, you just got to do this. They actually have to experience it and then um, make it their own, make it comfortable, make it instinctive. And it's only through time. It's only through time. So when guys come to me and they, you know, they're they're playing off, you know, eight. I say to them, how many times a week you playing? I say, oh, playing once a week. And I say, I oh, see so playing off eighteen. Yeah, how'd you know? And then the next guy comes to me, oh, I'm playing twice a week. I oh, see so you're playing a 14, 15. Yeah, how'd you know? So unfortunately, the game, it only gives you what you're prepared to put into it. So um, to get to that elite scratch, you've got to be playing six, seven times a week. You've got to immerse yourself in it for like two or three years before you'll even have a chance of, of getting somewhere in that realm where you can basically take the variety of golf shots that are out there and make them instinctive and make them your own. There's just there's too many golf shots out there. That, that's basically going to trip you up and call on that filing cabinet. If you don't have it, <laughs> then, wow, um, you're going to struggle at certain certain aspects of golf shots or parts of the golf course that are out there. Uh, that's why Tiger, working for 12 hours a day for ever since he was three years of age, he's just got so much information, so much in his filing cabinet to draw on instinctively as well as competitively. Um, then he can start to rely on his competitive streak of just forgetting about all that. And that's just sheer will and want of wanting to get this ball in the hole or hitting the shot or chipping it in or, you know, he's got the feel for it. Um, that's it. Like he's just pure feel. Like some of those golf shots where he's falling through <laughs> like this. Like it's like you can't teach that. It's just, uh, it's just playing. It's just, it's, it's in there. So, um, yeah, so for me that was, that's kind of like my, my journey and then, uh, going out there and, and playing these golf shots. So for me, my I think my reputation came about when you sit down at the lunch table um, and reputations come from the next big thing coming out is going to be hitting golf shots that, you know, is either can't be hit or you shouldn't be hitting. 
And that's pretty much what the elite have is that they all have golf shots that you'll play with them and go, I don't have that golf shot. <laughs> I can't hit that at all. So that's what separates them. So for me, it's not so much missing it short on a slide up slope to a middle pin and you chip it up there nice and close. It was my reputation came from being on a down slope on a hard pan to a short pin downwind and hitting it to here. It's like there's no reason you should be hitting it to there. Um, it's not justifiably in any realm correct or even how can, I, how can I work that? Have you done that? So, but this is back also as well. Um, I think with Trackman, Stephen Williams said when all these green books came out, like it was a huge disservice to him for how his knowledge that he's accumulated over time through experience and through um, his professionalism was an advantage for Greg and all of his players that he caddied for because there, there was this not much information out there. There weren't many caddies that would go out there and roll balls around every single part of the green and look at rough types and thicknesses around the green and go, that's okay, but that one's it's a little bit thicker over there. So, And he would map all this stuff out. Now it's all just there in front of them. So Trackman's another one. So Trackman is another, another I guess, institution where they've just come out with information. Of course, now, of course. It's got to get certified level one level two go beyond it get um go to trackman university and you're a genius we're all geniuses but i'll never forget um in 2000 I'm, I'm hitting drawers out of a bunker with an open face and none of them could work it out just so that was my advantage i got a massive advantage around the greens um and even though you would tell them and um yeah that's still like yeah wow they're a little bit baffled with it so sebi did the same thing whether it was um you know, it, it didn't matter like where he got his information from. He just he just worked it out. He just knew that if he did this and this, um, being an intuitive mind, I'm guessing like he would have been like myself. And through the hours that you put into it, you just start to work these things out. And I think the silly thing is, is that growing up, every single pro shop that pretty much almost I, I walked past had a Henry Griffiths club fitting system, <laughs> and they had a sandwich in there, the most lofted golf club. And they had a, uh, a red drilled hole, red metal rod that would go into this face. This is back through the through the 90s. And then you could just start to now do this with it, start to work it around, just see where this thing's going. Go out in the chipping green and go, oh, all right. Okay, that's why the slope's doing that. And, that's, and then you just start to piece things together. So um, even to the point where Scotty Drummond won the PGA, an amazing player. Um, I play with the Irish Open and he's missed it on the first hole just to the left and these balls above the feet. He has to grip it down the shaft and I'm standing just to his left and the face is like literally looking like <laughs> this over here. Yeah, and he's standing there like this elite professional he just wins the PGA and he hits this shot and it's just like literally just pings out, pin-eye perfect, 15 feet. I moved a bit further out the left and he's kind of like he's looked at his face and he's looked up at his caddy that's standing up on top of the bank. He's going, man, that's hit a rock. It's like he's digging back into the grass looking for the rock. And I just, again, I was like, wow, this is 2000 and, this is 2004, five. So um, Trackman is just genius. And, and the information that's out there now uh, with everything, force plates, 3D, Ryan Lumsden, Dr. Rob Neal, um, those boys have been around for a long, long while. So they've, um, they've, they've done some massive, huge um, in ways into uh, the biomechanics of the golf swing and the body, how it moves. Um, 
but that whole face interaction is um, is amazing. So, um, and I think a lot of the players these days, I mean, they're, they're spoiled for the information that's out there considering when we grew up, like literally our information short source was 15K radius from where we lived uh, for all of us. So until we got out there and started to speak to, to other you know, experienced professionals. And luckily enough for me, I was introduced to obviously Ross Herbert, early doors, um, went from there. Now, you spoke then about losing your advantage of people with the, with that advantage and then um, having it taken away from them. Did you find when you played in the US that the, maybe the course setups took that short game away from you, so to speak, because it wasn't quite the same as in Australia or yeah. Europe? Yeah, uh, not necessarily. It was just more I didn't really have – uh, the surroundings over there, I felt very uncomfortable. Um, and then also as well, I just, I went from using a broomstick potter and then I just, I just changed, uh, I conformed, should I say, to the ideology of what a PGA professional looks like. And that was my undoing. So I used a broomstick since 2004. I went across there and then Scotty Cameron gave me a whole bunch of putters and it just didn't feel right using a broomstick. I came eighth in my first event. And then after finishing eighth, I switched to a, a standard putter. And I putted with a normal putter for the rest of the year. And I just, it just didn't feel, I just didn't feel like me. I just didn't feel, and I'm not saying that that's, that's the only reason, but if I had my time again, I would have just continued just doing, doing me. And I, I saw Mac O'Grady as well in the first 11 weeks, which was a massive undoing as well. So, but it's kind of like what, what I had to do. Um, and it was great experience spending time with Mac. Don't get me wrong. Like his information is phenomenal, but it's different to going to a, through to a school and actually sitting down in a classroom and learning from him. So, um, and again, you know, he, he tries to manipulate and change someone's like literally personality. Um, just likes seemingly likes to have fun with it or otherwise. And um, and basically he was telling me what to do, how to think. I remember, yeah, with, with interviews and stuff like that, it was like it was just a really, really weird time in my life, very confusing of just can't I just keep doing what I'm doing? Um, can't I just be me? Um, and it just felt just felt very, very weird. So after 11 weeks out there on the road with Mac, it was just a very, very confusing time. And then sort of left there and then um, – those that know Mac O'Grady um, just completely disconnected all communication. And then just here I am, first year out on the PGA Tour, spending 11 weeks with this, with this, real, this legend of the game that's really impressionable, um, just trying to do the right things, just walking around on eggshells, just not being me, just, leave, just snaps it off and just leaves me out there. And now I'm walking around thinking, oh, is it me? What have I done? Um, is the other PGA professionals, what, what are they thinking of me? Have I, have I done something wrong? Or, but that's Mac, you know? Um, and, yeah, so it was just a really, really confusing confusing time. So I was still – and then Matt Beltram, who was my coach in the UK, sort of has to sort of – he was treading on eggshells as well because it's all part of the whole program and the process of, of being in the Mac stable and being coached under Mac and all his disciples – then have to sort of conform with him. So Matt, now Matt was kind of like a little bit hesitant to to coach me because if now Matt coaches me, now he's out of the program. But he I only saw him a couple of times throughout the year. It was just a really weird, 
weird year. So it wasn't so much anything to do with yeah, uh, my belief or the courses or anything like that. I mean, they're amazing golf courses, um, all of them. Um, but it's just it was just that whole experience was just a bit of a flop for me for my first year. And I just um, as experienced as what I was, looking back on it, I just made a lot of a lot of errors, which I wouldn't have gone to Palm Springs. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have associated myself with Mac. I would have just kept doing what I'm doing. Stuck with my guns, got Mac Matt over a few more times, and just kept using my broomstick. So it was working. So, and then all of a sudden, it just the whole year was just flipped on its head, and it was over like that. Um, yeah, and then out. Such a fine line between being yeah. successful and not. It's, um, yeah, it really tough. is. Yeah, it's tough. But so- also as well. But in saying that, I still would have committed myself to going back, um, Q school and the rest of it. But my wife, siblings, myself as well, um, and this is something to think about for the young kids as well, is that America is, is a huge carrot and it's, you know, it's, a, it's the ultimate testing ground, if you like. But it's a full commitment where you're going to be living there for the rest of your life. And I had a chat with Greg Chalmers when he came back uh, a few years back. You know, when he came back to Australia, he said, oh, I don't know, my tombstone's in Dallas. I'm, that's it. I'm, I'm living there. So I just found that and I realized that when I went across in January that if I'm going to commit to this PGA Tour, like that's it. I'm not coming home. Like you kiss your mum and dad goodbye and if they can get across and see you, great, but you're, you're not coming back. So Europe is great for the fact, particularly in Australia, Perth, Fraze, Wade um, that are out there now playing. It's great for them just to, for six months, you can base yourself in the UK and then for six months, you can base yourself in Australia play all the co-sanctioned events. So it's a bit of best of the both worlds where you actually get to spend time with the family. You got that. You must got like a – and six months is I actually found was a really, really good time where you, you miss going back away and then you're kind of over it and you're kind of looking forward to coming home. And that was kind of like the to and fro, the yin and yang of that six-month period where you're, just, you're itching to get back over there and then sort of just had enough itching to come back home see the family. So – and that's a – that's a real big draw card for mental stability, for the mental side of tour life and going out there and playing. You don't have to go to America. You don't have to go prove yourself on the biggest stage. You don't have to um, throw all your eggs in one basket. Um, so, because you can, because of just, you get a little bit lost over there as well. But um, so, yeah, you just got that good grounding. And that's what I liked about the European tour. So, I quickly realized that as well while I was over there. I didn't really, my heart wasn't in it fully for, for the fact that I knew that, wow, this is, I had to make up my mind that this is it. And I didn't want to do that. So, and I know a lot of the guys are still over there, Scotty Gardner and those boys, Cam Percy that have gone over there, they're living over there and that's it. Um, but I just wasn't prepared to do that. Interesting there. That's cool. But you've, you've stepped into a, into the coaching world as well at the moment. So you're doing, mm. doing some coaching and one of those international coaches who's jumped on you as the, the short game expert has had you present uh, with Andrew Rice. You were involved yeah. with, with Coach Cam. So how do you go about articulating what you do as a player into yeah. those students when you're actually coaching them? Um, that must be challenging as well. Really challenging. It's really it's it's really challenging to not so much to, to dumb it down, but um, I've just – from where I've come from, I've come from coaching elite players in terms of giving advice since since I can remember out on tour. So guys that are struggling in the lunchroom, yeah, yeah, I kind of look at you chipping, spend three hours with them, talking about short game. 
helping them out, playing different shots. Um, and then, so to actually associate yourself with the world's best players, world's best talent, um, that can articulate and understand the terminology, um, that, was, that was easy. <laughs> then coming back to a 20 marker that you got information that's just overwhelming with, with sort of like the direction where, they, where you know they need to go. But as well, I think, you know, for me, I, I can get caught up in the fact that I see everyone that just wants to get better or play off a scratch or um, head them in that direction. But um, if you're playing once a week, there's only so much you can do. Um, and to be realistic, it's all just about just getting the ball, good contact, getting the ball in the air, getting some consistency with their shot shape, with what they have, and then, like, yeah, just, just, just making them enjoy the game. Um, and then a bit of course management. But then again, you see them stuck in their way for the fact that there's one particular gentleman that's um, basically flat green, flat surface, um, varying lies. He's chipping it pretty well. I'm getting him chipping it quite nicely with the 60. He's making contact and he's getting a bit of check. It's nice. And it's like, look, you know what? But he wants to break 40. So he leaves himself that 40 range, 35, 40 range, which he can just make a double flubbish chip and not make it just as quick as that. So I was like, look, do me a favor next time you play, if you want to crack this 40 mark, because he's around 41, 42, 41s, he hit 40 the other day. I'm like, mate, just grab your hybrid in these situations. And I want you just to spend the next, you know, half an hour just dabbling around with this. I said, just grab your hybrid, grip it like this, and just run it along the ground. It's just, it's foolproof. You're going to be on the green. You make it five at worst. He goes, yeah. So he plays a few and he's getting the hang of it. He goes, yeah, it goes back to his 60. And he goes, nah, but I like that. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a there is a technical element. Yes, there is a um, there is that um, appreciation of being able to hit the shot. And then there's just the practicality of, of being able to make a score, that transferable shot option that I was talking about with your zones, um, with your optimizer. So um, it's really interesting. It's lots of fun. Um, and it's just lots of fun. It's, it's an element that I know that you just have to put yourself and immerse yourself in that situation. So with my bridging at the moment, I noticed in the first year, um, you can only, you can't do lessons. Secondly, second year, you can do X amount of lessons. And then third year, still only X amount of lessons. And I like, well, that's where the, all the theory is good and well, and all the practicality is good and well, but it's only philosophy until you actually experience it. And the experience is where you're going to do all your growth in the experience. That's it. That's where you're going to do 98% of your learning. And once you've got a basis and once, I guess for young kids, it's actually now having the development then to learn you know, a goal swing or a structure or how you want to swing. We've all got we've all got our philosophies on that. A lot of kids probably don't have it at 19. So that's probably where they're going to be walking into a lesson, maybe feeling a little bit nervous or anxious, knowing, you know, what what am I going to tell this guy? So um so I think I think for me, I it's going to take me many years before I can become um a top coach. Just like it takes many years to become an elite professional. You just don't just go walk into it and then have the experience. So here I am. I walk into the AS golf program and there's Dennis McDade. And Dennis is starting his journey. It's back in 1996. 
So from 1996 till now, Dennis has immersed himself in coaching philosophy, the teachings and learnings. He's given, I wouldn't know how many lessons he's given through that trial and error and that experience of learning about what, what works, what doesn't for players. So I've just, I've played for the last 21 years um, professionally and before that. But so now, yeah, like I just walk into coaching now. I just expect that I'm just going to just to know the ropes and just to, to know all the, the ins and outs of, of coaching. Um, nope, not going <laughs> to happen. So, and that's why the, the bridging program has been so amazing. Um, my only, my only, uh, not to be paid for it, but at least sit in. They should. Be, I think they just. But you know what? It's it's a tough gig traineeships because there's lots of stuff. You know, you have to do your hours and everything else. But um, I'd like to see more if you want to go down that realm of coaching as well. And not all of them want to coach, so that's a tough one as well. So to be restricted so heavily if you want to coach is a little bit. You're holding the reins back on someone that just wants to go, but um, or at least learn and be comfortable with it. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm certainly not saying I'm the world's best coach, but um, I'm very, very good in my area, but uh, still lots to lots to learn um, in terms of even just delivering information. No, that's cool. I just um, just uh, hear the passion in your voice when you talk about improving and continue to grow into something different as opposed to yeah. playing and growing into coaching. That's really, really cool. So yeah. I think... Um, Anyone who's coming and getting some coaching from you is certainly going to a, a good quality person who's yeah. only going to get better and better over time, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. look, yeah, it's just um, – and I, I don't know, the, the teaching code, there's, there's so much information out there now. I just find that uh, there's, there's my philosophy, if it is one, but um, is that being professional, is that you've got a responsibility to the individual, the individual. So whoever – that is that comes to see you, I believe it's every PGA professional's obligation to obviously teach him with the knowledge, best of his ability, with the knowledge that he or she may have at the time to help that individual um, and give time and your passion and your knowledge to that individual. But, um, but what's out there circulating now is just a different world, isn't it? Um, it's, um, and I know we all need to make a living. But it's, um, and I think it's great. Like it's, it's, it's up there for, for speculation as to whether it actually helps or hinders a lot of the stuff that's out there on social media these days. Um, and it's just whether, you know, you just want to take that, that simple swing thought to, to the range tee and yeah, let's have a go with that this week. Um, so there's plenty of those people as well, but, um, my philosophy is definitely, um, is exactly that is to actually, is to actually connect with the individual to help the individual um, ret uh, for retention in the game, to make them enjoy it, to give them experiences, to actually give them a taste of, you know, my life, um, where I've been and the joys that golf can bring. Um, I, think that's, um, I think that's a very powerful tool, I think, that we all actually um, possess. I think it's very underrated. It's a pretty good starting point anyway, isn't it, when it yeah. comes to coaching, if you yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. set up that, that relationship first. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Certainly, certainly a pretty good starting point. Brett, thank you so much for your time. You've, I've kept you way too long. You've been really That's generous right, sharing your information, but there's a few questions I'd like to throw to everyone, so I'm going to throw those at you now if you don't mind. So yeah, sure. what advice for coaches starting out out there have you got? Uh, if I can um, – I'm throwing in that same boat. 
So um, <laughs> actually, um, for me, my advice would be, have you got any advice for me, Brent? <laughs> so uh, lots to learn. That. Tune into the Coaching Uncovered podcast to hear all the, the, <laughs> the previous coaches talk about the answers. Yeah. Oh, look, it's, I think study, study, study. Um, there's so much out there, isn't there? But I think um, I think for myself anyway, like with, with what I know, with my short game anyway, but it's um, – I think it's just really just having the belief in what you're what you're delivering. You know, I think you just need real belief, real conviction, and that's uh, that that part can take a little while. Um, sometimes it doesn't really necessarily um, matter so much what you're saying, but it's the conviction, the passion, and the and the belief that the shoot needs to buy into. So if it's a little bit hard, harder or scratching your head with it, then it's um, yeah, that can. I think that could, uh, well, for myself included, in my experience, can be mm, a little off-putting. So hard to trust. Makes sense. Makes sense. So this yeah. one's probably a bit more in your wheelhouse. Advice for, for players out there? Yep. Um, make it your own. Like, listen, take it all in, but don't take it as the gospel. Don't take it for even the most valued um, opinions on the planet. Still make it your own still try to see through it if it doesn't work don't continue to try and make something work and don't be afraid to say no i don't like that I, this is not working for me or that doesn't that doesn't suit me um you really have to take ownership for the elite player anyway um really has to really dissect between um hanging too much like there's two there seems to be like two two different individuals on the planet that one will listen to a coach and say, look, you know what? You're never going to make it because your golf swing's here physiologically. You can't do this. You're not lifting this. You're not strong enough. You're not in these realms. You're never going to make it until you change. So he goes, oh, yep, nods his head. Yep, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. And then goes to the dry ring just to working on it. you got the other kid that goes, you can't do this. You can't do that because of these reasons. You go, F you, mate. What shot you want to see? <sighs> High fade. <sighs> Low draw. And he would just prove you wrong because he's just got that much belief in his ability. So those kids, um, there are not many of them out there, but I think so many kids are actually just getting caught up in this this model, this framework, this where golf is about, you know, Sevi would talk about it with the old guys. It's about painting a canvas, you know. It's uh, you're, you're your own artist. And golf is about working a golf ball and manipulating and, and just – painting this canvas and getting a feel for it intuitively and knowing your game. The more you give of yourself and the more you give away of yourself, the more you won't know yourself or your own game. It's about um, being true to yourself and listen to that voice inside. Listen to that that inside because that's generally, that's going to lead you the way. If you want it, you got to listen to it and just, um, yeah, that's kind of like what, yeah, that's what I'll be giving. I like it. Good I like nice. it a lot. Um, mm. Any, if you had the chance to go back and change something in your career, would you, would you go back and change anything? Is there anything uh, that you would you would do? Yeah, look, I'd I'd probably have more, but again, like it's all circumstantial for for what we had back in the day. But hundred percent, I would be looking at surrounding myself with a better team, better support networks. Hundred um, percent, more on the psychology, um, and more more knowing of myself. Um, Warren Knorr, for instance, you know, just personality profiling, which they've all got now. Um, they're also like tapping into that, but certainly not actually having that back when I was a kid. 
I think, um, really uh, probably derailed me at certain points in my career and then took me a whole lot longer to get back on track uh, from those derailments. So I think if uh, having that support network and those people around, I think would have would have been the only thing that would have changed outside of that. Yeah, nothing. Keeping the broomstick in the bag, maybe, when you're in America? <laughs> yeah, keeping the broomstick in the bag. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. And uh, I would have, I also would have worked more on my uh, my powerlifting as well. Like I, two thousand, you know, we saw Tiger Woods all jacked up, and I was, I was just in the gym, just lifting, just doing upper body weights and back and chest, and just trying to get all buff and have these little chicken legs walking around. And then uh, I definitely would have done. But then again, you know, they they talked about powerlifting was just the absolute death of your golf game. Yeah. Back through the two thousands, it was like, what what are you doing, man? You you doing deadlifts? What are you doing? So there's lots of things that, you know, um, even changing your goal swing, don't change your goal swing, um, can't change your goal swing, it's the death of you. All these, all these, mis, all these sayings and these you know, complete misperceptions of, of what we grew up with. Um, yeah, there's lots of things that yeah, I would have changed, but not much. You know, mainly the psychology part, having that team around me, that's the number one thing. All good. Um, where do you see yourself in five years' time? Oh, preparing for the seniors tour? Yeah. <laughs> so, in Australia or, or overseas? Anyway, uh, probably Europe. Europe would be, and even give the, the US a crack as well. So, but, uh, but Europe, I'll, after with my winners category, I think you're the, the first 12 months you get an exemption. Okay. If you've won X amount of events over at least one or two events, two events, I think. So I'll head on over there and give that a go. But um, I'll just be working on my coaching and, uh, in that direction, starting up an academy, ultimately uh, once I finish my time and get my qualifications. Nice. Um, where do you go when you're sourcing new information to improve yourself? Is there Are you a podcast person? Is there websites you go to? Yeah, look, it's, it's just the internet um, and then people's referrals as well. So people in the industry have got, um, if you ask around uh, the right people, the right questions, um, there's plenty of people out there that's going to help you. So, um, and there's there seems to be like a simmering underground of information that's uh, that's definitely out there, just uh, either for getting the one up on your competitors or otherwise. But um, and there's lots of information that's out there. So, and it's all through Google or the internet or books, but mainly it's going to be just through word of mouth uh, through the industry. And obviously, um, I wouldn't mind getting over to the PGA show as well over in the states. Orlando, that would be, I think that'd be a pretty cool experience um, with all those talks. Um, and there's lots of, like Andrew Rice, there's lots of those um, series as well coming out these days as well. So um, if you're prepared to invest in your future and your knowledge as well, I think that's, um, I think there needs to be some amount of money through your annual budget that you've got to put aside for exactly that, uh, for your own development. So, um, yeah, don't uh, don't think that you try and do it for free or try and skirt the uh, the expense of it. Just uh, if it costs, it costs. So, and knowledge is knowledge. Makes sense. I like it. I like it. Plugs. Where can people find you? Are you have you got a social media presence anywhere where they can get in touch? Yeah, if they want yeah. to continue the conversation. Yes, I've got uh, just. Uh, I think there's a link through Instagram, which has my hotmail there. Um, outside of that, just Wembley Golf Course. So I'm around. Um, once I get out of here Monday, I'll be back to working out at Wembley. So I'm out there uh, pretty much every day. Nice. So 
I'll put some links in the show notes for everyone so they can they can find you and, and yeah, get right in touch right. there. And there's always um, there's plenty of good stuff on on your Instagram. It's always nice to yeah. check out what you're doing in there. <laughs> and Wembley over in Perth is a pretty good setup these days with the good yeah. range and all the. It's all amazing. The it's truly amazing, and uh, there's room for growth there as well and improvement. So they're they're constantly looking forward. So look out. Not really cool. Well, Romy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming in and talking to me. You've been really generous with your time. And um, no worries, bro. hopefully you're out of quarantine soon and you can get back to doing yeah. what you love. <laughs> um, but yeah, I appreciate Absolutely. you coming in and talking to me. Cheers, mate. No, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much, mate. <laughs>